with the gift of your Holy Spirit so that we might see Jesus through the good news for which he accomplished on the cross. That we might be united to him by faith. We might practice his gifts and be changed into his likeness. That we might show forth the abundant fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you might think that I am going to preach from Acts 2 on this Pentecost day, and maybe even I should, but I've decided to preach from our gospel passage this morning. In fact, it is the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, that has had such a significance in our theology of the Holy Spirit. And so I invite you to open up your Bibles or your service booklets to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 8 to 17. Let us consider Philip's crime. Let us consider Christ's claim. Let us consider Christ's character. And let us consider Christ's promise and see what this has to do with the Holy Spirit. So what's so offensive by Philip's plea? What is so outrageous? Why does this offend Christ? Is it not his words show us And it will be enough. How often do we say such words? Show us, Lord, and it will be enough. When Christ promises great works in verse 12, when he promises answered prayers in verse 13, when he promises the Holy Spirit in verse 16, he's doing two things. First, he's exposing a fundamental flaw that we are prone to make. He is exposing our propensity to want something more than Jesus. And second, he is unearthing the great treasures that lie at the heart of his promises. But first, let us consider the former. What do the promises of Christ have to do with Philip's crime? Is it not because they go against the very claim of Christ? He shares the same deity as the Father. He is one with the Father, united with the Father. He is submissive to the Father. This is what we read in verse 10. This is the backdrop of Christ's promises. It is his claim of being God. It is his name that makes us to receive the Spirit's power to do greater works and to enjoy answered prayers. There's nothing more than Him. He is the revelation of God Himself. He recreates that we might know the Father and enjoy the Spirit. Notice how Jesus shows us what it looks like to have the promised power of the Holy Spirit. Notice how when Jesus had every reason to be at loss... 
He provides words of comfort, encouragement, and hope. He's getting ready to leave his beloved disciples. But he offers words of hope, not despair. Moments earlier, he exposed Judas as his betrayer in chapter 13. And shortly after, in verse 5 of chapter 14, Thomas is revealed, Thomas reveals that he and the disciples are ignorant of Christ's way. And now in verse 8, only a few verses later, Philip says that if he and his disciples could have something more, then that would be enough for them. Sure, he claims that he wants Christ to show him the Father, but Christ is showing him the Father, and it's not enough. So then, what he really wants is something more. He wants an add-on. He wants Christ and something else. Despite the seemingly pessimistic situation at the brink of Christ's departure, notice how Christ is stalwart in the spirit of truth. He's unmoved, unshakable. Notice how he is encouraged and hopeful and confident. He's the unwavering exemplar for whom we are to trust. He is the conqueror who makes us more than conquerors. Notice the stark contrast of Christ and his disciples here, namely Philip. See how weak, weary, and distracted by something else he is? At first sight, all might seem okay with Philip's request. After all, he calls Jesus Lord. He recognizes the disciples' need to grow and mature in the Lord. And his request is perhaps even a result of having drawn upon the biblical accounts of Moses and Isaiah and how they received a limited vision of God's glory. Both in Exodus 33, verse 18, and Isaiah 6, verse 1. But Jesus declares him guilty of his offense in verse 9, doesn't he? He says to Philip that he does not truly know him despite having spent all this time with him. Like Philip, we may cloak our idolatry in deference. Like Philip, we may cloak our self-deprecation or humility. Like Philip, we may cloak our idolatry even in religious devotion. But if we are not satisfied with Christ alone, then we are consumed with something else. And it's not the Father or the Spirit. How often do we say, I love you, Jesus, but please give me an A-plus in this class. I love you, Jesus, please give me a promotion at work. Make me successful in society. Give me something more. Give me something else. How often does the something more distract us from the everything? How often does the something more replace the one who is before all things and holds all things together? While we should share our thoughts and feelings with our Lord, we should not think that He will do all that we want and wish. 
He promises to do what we ask, but we must ask in His name. Not in the name of our appetites, but in His name, in His character. We must ask in the hope and promises that Christ reveals. Is this not the life in the Spirit? A life that is purposed and hopeful. A life that is encouraged and confident in Christ. Though Philip may have started off weak in his believing, he ends strong. And this is something that should encourage our hearts as so often we find ourselves relating with Philip. You see, all hope is not lost. Philip may have heavily relied on his ability to comprehend Christ, but nevertheless, he comes to trust in Christ completely. So maybe there's a lesson for us to learn from Philip. A lesson that will, at the most, prevent us from destruction, and at the very least, prevent us from unnecessary pain. So stop trying to comprehend Christ. Simply trust Him. Let the vision of Christ move you and allure you to faith and repentance. You see, we should do well to remember that no one is ever mentioned of coming to faith on Mars Hill when Paul wonderfully practices apologetics. Where he makes reasonable the faith. And I am not, I, I am certainly not going against how our faith is reasonable. I'm certainly a lover of apologetics. So don't stone me. But faith is not something that we can conjure up. Faith is a person for whom we can see. And if we see that person, Jesus Christ, He allures us. He plunges us deeper and deeper in love for Him. We are made stronger and stronger through His Spirit. So let us look to the tender mercy of Christ. Listen to what he says in verse 11. He says, in effect, that if you can't believe in my words, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, then believe on account of the works themselves. You see how the Lord is pleading with us to look to his tender mercy Look to Him. Let Him allure you to believe. Look to Him. See His works and listen to His words. Now notice the significance of Christ's promises. Notice the significance of Christ's promises concerning our works, prayers, and the Spirit. This is the treasure that lies Below the promises. It is God Himself. We read in verses 11 to 17 that Christ promises that those who believe will do greater works because He is going to the Father, He says, and that they can ask Christ anything in His name and He will do it, He says. And that the Holy Spirit is the abiding gift for those 
who love the Lord. First, we learn that the Holy Spirit is a gift, not an achievement. Some might want us to think that they are better than everyone else because of a certain gift that they demonstrate. They're not better. They didn't achieve anything extraordinary. If you be in Christ, then you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is not an achievement of us, but this is a gift from God. It's a gift from the Father through the Son because of Christ's work, because of Christ's return, and because of Christ's request to the Father. The Father gives to Christ's followers another helper. Just as the creative activity of the Father and the redeeming work of the Son are gifts, so is the sanctifying Holy Spirit a gift. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He sanctifies us. He makes us holy. And being holy is being strong. It's being powerful. It's having peace, confidence, encouragement, hope. You see, we did not achieve the Spirit, but through His grace and mercy, we are able to enjoy the Spirit. Are we enjoying the Spirit? So often the Holy Spirit is overlooked, or the Holy Spirit is reduced to a mere emotion. Indeed, the Holy Spirit, there is emotion that we experience through the power of the Holy Spirit. But do you want to know why? Because the Holy Spirit is a person. He is personal. That is why it is emotional. Because He's the person who dwells within us and alongside of us. Notice the purposeful and personal language of the Spirit that emerges in our text. Notice how He ensures the success of one's love and devotion to Christ. Jesus says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. In verse 15. Then immediately He moves to the other Helper, for which the Father is to give, the Spirit of Truth. Isn't it interesting how the Holy Spirit emerges from Christ's command to love, to love Him. You see, the Holy Spirit indeed is personal. And the Holy Spirit is indeed the one who empowers us to live personally, to love Christ, to keep His commands. You see, the word parakletos literally means, this is the word that we get comforter or helper or advocate, it literally means to come alongside of. Some of your Bibles may say comforter, which is Wycliffe's translation. But this is not just a matter of consoling. In fact, Wycliffe is drawing from the Apostle Paul's word endunamas, the word comfort, which has its root in the word power, dunamas which is where we get the word dynamite. And so this comforter, this helper, this advocate, this one who speaks for us, 
speaks powerfully in us. The evangelist is making clear that the ministry of the Spirit not only comes alongside us, but powerfully and personally dwells within us, and he does it forever, we read. It's abiding. Forever. Why? To glorify the Father in the Son, we are told. You see, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He points to the Son. He glorifies the Son. And in glorifying the Son, the Father is glorified. The Spirit convinces us that the Jesus of the Gospel really exists. And that, and that what He is for us and for our salvation. That's what the Spirit does. He convinces us that Jesus really exists. The Jesus of the Gospel. And that He is for us and for our salvation. Church, we should praise God for the personal and the powerful Holy Spirit that not only dwells in us, but with us and makes us like Him victorious forever. He's the abiding gift. He's the sign of our victory. He is the sign of our hope. Let the Holy Spirit encourage your hearts, comfort you and console you and make you strong. We should also learn that we are to do works. We are to do works and even greater works. Does Christ mean that we will walk on water? Does Christ mean that we will raise the dead? Does Christ mean that we will perform miracles? Well, we certainly should be open to this. We should also be honest that such are not normative in the history of the church. I'm not saying that they have not existed. I'm simply saying that they're not normative in the history of the church, and we should be honest about it. And this should drive us to rightly handle the word of truth, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.15. And when we do, we should notice how John seems to use this word, works, to speak of the whole of Christ's ministry, to include his miracles, to include his activities and his teachings. So perhaps Christ is speaking of the volume, the volume of God's manifesting his activity. Here we're given a big picture that is so encouraging. Sometimes we need to step back. Sometimes we need to step back a bit and see the sight in full view. We are members of the body of Christ, church. We are participants in God's redeeming work. The church is not confined to space and time like Jesus was when he walked this earth. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are made co-laborers in Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to glorify the Father in the Son. 
To borrow the imagery of C.S. Lewis, we are not just a bunch of saved individuals dotted about, but are more like one big, deeply connected glob that is continuing to manifest the work and the glory of the Son. We are members and participants of the greater work of God's church. Perhaps the reason why we are so distressed and weak, perhaps it's because we see ourselves as mere individuals. Perhaps we are narcissistic, self-consumed. This is certainly a product of our time, of our age. But here we learn through the Scriptures that we ought to think of the family for which we are part of. We are members of God's church. We are members of His body, Christ's body. And lastly, we learn that we are able to receive by prayer. It is through prayer that we are able to receive. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. As alluded to earlier, Christ is not suggesting a man-centered religion. He is showing the practical method of our Lord's tender mercy in satisfying and centering us around Him. Why? So that we might glorify the Father and the Son. You see, however weak and imperfect our prayers may be, as long as they are prayed in Christ's name, they are not in vain. As long as they are prayed in the very character of the revealed, resurrected Lord, they are not in vain. As long as they are prayed with the character of Christ in mind and heart, they're good for us. They change us. They satisfy us. They're glorifying for the Father and the Son. You see, there is much that we can gain from them. There is much change that we will have because of them. These prayers are practical instruments of the Holy Spirit sanctifying grace and satisfaction for us. A preacher once asked, how is it that so many professed Christians have so little? How is it that so many of us show such little strength in the Lord? And the answer is plain and simple. We've not, we have not because we've, we ask not. We have little because we ask little. We are not better than we are because we do not ask our Lord to make us better. May our prayers never cease until we know and feel that we have the great treasure that lies at the heart of Christ's promises. May our prayers never cease until we know and feel the abiding Holy Spirit. And when we feel that abiding Holy Spirit, our prayers will not cease. No, they will flow in abundance 
We will not be at a loss of words to say. No, we will be enjoying the communion with the Father and the Son. You see, if we are to have the mark of Christ upon our hearts, we are to pray. So let us pray every chance that we can and let us pray in the very character of Christ Himself who is full of the Holy Spirit, full of hope and encouragement and confidence, full of power and peace and promise. For when we cross that heavenly threshold, when we know and feel that we have the great treasure that lies at the heart of Christ's promises, know this, we will not need prayer. We will not need to offer requests and petitions. We will not need to close our eyes and imagine the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth at the right hand of the Father. No, our eyes will be open. Our petitions will be answered. Our prayers will be completed. For we will be with Him. We will be with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.